Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp. In this episode, we talk to David Corton. David is the founder and president of the Living Economies Forum, co-founder of Yes Magazine, and a full member of the Club of Rome. Because the context for this podcast is relationship, we asked Charles Holmes, David's friend and a gifted facilitator with the Common Good Collective, to interview David about well-being, economics, in this unique moment in history. I'm also very aware that the process here is not one of finding the guru. It is a collective process, and it has to be. I often say anybody that thinks they have the solution clearly does not understand the problem. The conversation starts with Charles reading a poem from a book entitled Embers, One Ojibwe's Meditations by Richard Wagamas. From our very first breath, we are in relationship. With that indrawn draft of air, we become joined to everything that ever was, is, and ever will be. When we exhale, we forge that relationship by virtue of the act of living. Our breath commingles with all breath, and we are a part of everything. That's the simple fact of things. We were born into a state of relationship and our ceremonies and rituals are guides to lead us deeper into that relationship with all things. Big lesson, relationships never end, they just change. And believing that lies the freedom to carry compassion, empathy, love, kindness and respect into and through whatever changes. We are made more by that practice. Yet in so many ways, it feels like we've lost that. What fascinates me about that poem is it gets us into the deeper question of reality as we experience it, but also the deepest foundational understandings, which for many religious traditions, or at least the spiritual aspects of the religious traditions, is a sense of spiritual oneness. But it's also fascinating that within science, the quantum physics, they talk about the 90% of what is, is dark energy, suggesting the whole of creation as we experience it is 2%. It's almost like the spirit has kind of carved off 2% of its being in an experience to express as creation as we know it, as material world that is, in fact, continuously evolving toward ever greater complexity, beauty, awareness, and possibility. Now, at the deepest level, I think about that as could it be that the spirit is on a quest to know itself and its actual possibilities through this experiment. That 2% that we experience now through science includes literally billions of star systems, <laughs> massive, and yet it's such a small part of the total. And then you come down to we humans, which is a tiny, tiny piece of the whole of what we now, in a sense, grasp and experience. And yet we're also so different from anything else that we know within that. I mean, even among Earth species, we are distinctive as a species with the frontal lobes of our brain, the capacity to create stories and, in a sense, create the realities of how we relate and, and many of the realities of the world, create them out of our mind in a way that, as far as we know, no other species can even contemplate. 
And that, of course, then leads us into that deep question of why. <laughs> what you described is the complete opposite of entropy. Yes, it is. As far as I know, science has never really confronted this contradiction, but it is a fundamental contradiction between their theory of entropy and their observations about how creation, the cosmos, unfolds. Entropy is supported essentially by microevidence that within microsystems, uh, you know, there, there's obviously that piece. In some ways, you you think about life, what we recognize as living organisms. They're actually in a constant struggle against entropy. And as soon as that struggle against entropy stops, and we call that labor, life's labor. And as soon as life stops laboring against entropy, that's death. The most immediate experience of that, of course, is our own bodies, which are comprised of tens of trillions of individual cells, including all sorts of microorganisms. Our existence as human beings depends on that incredible self-organization of those trillions of beings in ways that we have only the foggiest understanding of, literally just beginning to recognize the, the nature of it, let alone understand how it, how it happens the complexity and the lack of understanding, and we're certainly facing that right now with this COVID-19, what's occurring in the world and how little we realize we know. I'd just be really curious to hear, David, what's emerging for you in this time? I mean, we're, you know, as you and I are having this conversation here towards the end of May, eight, nine weeks into a global pandemic, what is it that, that, that's striking you? What, what's, what's emerging? Well, my attention is particularly focused you know, on the larger human reality that we're literally organizing economically based on deeply flawed economic theory. We're organizing in ways, defining our relationships with one another in nature in ways that we're literally destroying Earth's capacity to sustain life. And since we are living beings born of and nurtured by a living Earth, our very existence depends on the well-being of Earth as a living being, which is really about the Earth's community of life. So you think about the analogy to our individual body, but then, then you've got you know, this, this whole planet that is literally alive because all these living organisms have brought it to life. And somehow we humans were introduced into that process. You know, I think of the human existence as creation's most daring experiment, at least that we know of, in the creative potentials of a self-reflective consciousness with the power to choose, to choose its nature and to choose its future. Boy, so far we have really gotten it wrong, you know, which is not just our current situation. The current structures are really an extension of 10,000 years of an imperial, I mean, we call it civilization, but it's hardly civilized, but an a set of imperial structures by which the, the few control and dominate the many, including uh, control and exploitation of Earth systems. Most recently, we do that basically for the sole purpose of making money. Which then gets into the obvious thing. I mean, you think about it, it's self-evident. Money itself is nothing but a number. It has no existence outside of the human mind. And yet here we are putting ourselves on a path to self-extinction for the sole purpose of growing those numbers, which by the way we structure society gives a very few people the power to essentially control everything and drive the extinction process faster for the purpose of growing their numbers. You and I have had this conversation a few times now as this uh, beautiful, uh, very short but powerful paper uh, you've written over the past number of months that was just recently featured in the 
International Science Council. These these three basic truths that you that you highlight in in that paper, and we're featuring this on the Common Good Collective website as well, are yeah. just are just so. I mean, they are both basic and and in, and so self evident. Human well being depends on the well being of the living Earth. It is a living and living entity. Humans are choice-making species of many possibilities, and you've spoken about how we create stories, we create our realities, we choose our future by the choices we make, and the drive to grow money, as you've just pointed out, imperils, jeopardizes our, our human future. And it's all about an economic that absolutely does not recognize that we're living beings. And it literally denies the very existence of community. And yet, if you have the most remote understanding of life and how living systems self-organize to create and maintain the conditions of their own existence, life can exist only in living communities. Wow. So what is the antidote to that? Change the story. Say more. I've so loved your writing on the stories we've told ourselves and, and the importance of changing yeah. that story. But You know, it just starts with acknowledging we're living beings, born of and nurtured by a living earth. Life exists only in communities that self-organize to create and maintain the conditions of their own existence. And we have to learn to live and organize as communities. It's so astonishing if you look at the statistics and, of course, deeply alarming you know, not just of the of the larger environmental frame, but the statistics on the increase in the number of single parent families, even more the number of single person households, particularly in our supposedly more advanced countries like the United States and Japan and South Korea and so forth, like a third of, of these societies, the people that literally live alone. And then you think about We've created a society in which instead of people growing their own food as a community <laughs> in relationship to their land and nature, most of us absolutely depend on money for food, for water, for entertainment, for transportation, for a place to live. And if you don't have money, you know, you're resigned to homelessness. You still got to get money or you're going to starve. Once you've got a society set up that way, if I could be the person who controls the creation and distribution of money, I have got ultimate power and control of society. So this is where you begin to think about the economics or the economic structures. And then you begin to look at the money system. And it's fascinating to me how little understanding, I mean, the, the people who have the least understanding of money tend to call themselves economists. The way they think about the economy is totally in terms of flows of money. And not the fact that we depend on a living earth exactly. to sustain us. The denying of the earth. So then you think, well, if you've got people that don't understand money and yet frame the economy totally around money and ignore our nature's living beings, how effective do you think they're going to be in providing us with the theories that we use to decide how we're going to organize as societies and how we're going to live? I would run screaming from that possibility, and yet that is exactly what we are into. You've been listening to The Common Good Podcast conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. As the conversation moves to changing the collective story, we wanted to stay for a moment in the self-evident truth 
of the interconnection of all things. This poem by Hannah Stevenson is called Ancient Language. If you stand at the edge of the forest and stare into it, every tree at the edge will blow a little extra oxygen towards you. It has been proven. Leaves have admitted it. The pines I have known have been especially candid. One said that all breath in this world is roped together, that breathing is the most ancient language. Now back to Charles. Changing the story is about engaging the collective, the broad collective. And this gets it to the importance of the collective versus the individual. And, and also, you know, some might say on the surface, changing the story, that's pretty simplistic, David. Yeah, and it's actually that simplistic is a source of our hope. I mean, here's a piece of that. If you begin to think about our institutions, and of course, you know, we're both schooled in organizations. So, you know, we're supposedly schooled in how institutions shape our behavior. And yet, if you think about it, our institutions of government, corporations, or any set of business and money, none of those have any reality outside of the human mind. And yet, they're absolutely dominant in terms of how we organize our rewards and punishments and so forth and our relations with one another and how we ultimately then live with one another on Earth. But there is literally no barrier to rapid change mm -hmm. in how we perceive our story outside of the human mind. So you change the story, you then change the structure, the institutions, the systems that in turn lead to the changes in behavior. And certainly in these last two months, we've seen examples of how quickly that yeah. can happen. And, you know, in some ways, it's like nature has been trying to get our attention with climate change and all the aspects of that. And somehow we didn't get it. Okay, now we'll try the virus, see if we can get those idiots' attention with the virus. I have no idea whether there's anything intentional of that, but it is what the system is doing. Do you have hope that we will learn from that? I have hope we'll learn from it. The thing that keeps me awake at night is the knowledge that while the story could change extremely quickly, we have so many of our institutions are wedded to the idea of don't change the story. But even beyond that, the power, of course, is also all concentrated in those institutions. The other part that keeps me awake is the knowledge that when many of these things started to come out back in the early 1970s, particularly around the Club of Rome's limits to growth, some of us were aware we didn't have a whole lot of time even then. Now we're in a situation where we have no time at all. The changes have to be almost instantaneous. So is that possible? I frankly see no reason to believe that it is, but I'm also aware that unless we act with the belief that change is not only necessary, it is possible, then we don't attempt the change and our belief becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whether we change or not, I, I'm going to act as if we can. And with whatever time remains to me, I'm going to do everything I can to advance that possibility. What is it that you would offer to others to act as if? I'm, I'm hearing very clearly the importance of the collective changing the story. But what's the action? What, what is it that we, can, that we can do as individuals? One of the things very fascinating to me currently in, in the midst of the coronavirus, you know, it's actually a juxtaposition between 
myself and my wife, Fran. My focus is on the global, and it's on these very large framing issues. It's on my relationships with colleagues like yourself that are also working globally at basically very high system levels. Fran is focused on the local here on our island of Bainbridge. What you see here, I mean, we've been very fortunate and we have very, very few cases and very few deaths. But it's fascinating what's happening in our community because Fran's church and all the different groups that she belongs to, they are strictly observing physical distancing rules. And most all their conversations are over Zoom. And at the same time, the relationships seem to be shifting. It's, it's a local parallel to what I'm experiencing globally. People are asking much deeper questions. They're setting much bolder agendas. They're relating with one another in much deeper ways. I think part of it relates to Zoom somehow, though it separates us physically, creates more conversation. You know, instead of giving each other lectures, we actually have discussions. And I think that's fundamentally part of our learning which is another theme that I find just absolutely essential to our development of societies and communities and so forth. The whole frame of social learning and even learning to learn together as we, in a sense, collectively deepen our understanding of ourselves and our relationship to whatever this larger reality is that uh, we're <laughs> confronting in a, some very difficult but essential ways. You know, it's it's fascinating. I'm just as I'm listening to you, David, I'm drawn back to the poem where we started about <laughs> about relationship and the big lesson. Relationships never end, they just change. And the way you've described the deepening of relationship in the face of a situation where one might argue relationships are jeopardized. In fact, in many places, and certainly the way you described it for Fran and others, that's not the case. They've they've gone deeper. And, you know, in fact, our relationships are always changing, but, you know, and it's not just our relationships with other people, it is our relationships with, uh, with Earth. Suddenly we realize, oh, we need food. Mm -hmm. Where does food come from? Well, I get it from a supermarket, but, oh my, if the supermarket doesn't get it from the farmers, and, oh, some of these farmers are on the other side of the world. Now, well, we got farmers right here what's going on here with these supply chains? And part of the devastation that we face is life organizes cyclically, the regeneration of life. You know, this is the simple thing that our food depends on the nutrients of the soil. In each locality, you need to have a cycle. Nutrients need to get back into the soil in a way that is consistent with the needs of life's regenerative systems. We organize the global economy as a, a linear one-way system that absolutely upsets these most fundamental of relationships. Hopefully this is a, an educational moment to really wake up. And this is why local economies are absolutely essential. At the same time, I get a little concerned when people talk almost ideologically about localism, kind of like the frame local. We need local systems within a global framework, a framework of global cooperation, where we're meeting our material needs within the limits of our local living systems. At the same time, we are sharing globally our learning and our knowledge of the beneficial technologies that help us live better, living better in a well-being sense, 
in a way that also is consistent with the with the well-being of Earth. Having lived for 15 years in Asia, I initially was very aware that in most of the Asian cultures, there's a very different sense of the individual. Individuals identified a whole lot less as individuals and a whole lot more as members of their community or their culture, their society. Didn't always lead to peaceful relationships, but just that recognition captured in the South African concept of Ubuntu. I am because you are. Put that in a larger sense that is so foundational. And the fact of the international experience that Fran and I shared, where through our lifetimes we've been immersed in so many different cultures that are, are so dramatically different and lead to different ways of relating and, and organizing, which is part of the source of my recognition of our human possibilities. Thanks for listening. You can find more information about David and Charles in the show notes. If you like this conversation, we have good news. David and Charles will be speaking with Peter and John on June 16th for the upcoming Common Good Conversation. Be sure to find the link in the show notes and register. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Trillenchamp, and produced by the incredible Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.